Uh, if you were to arrive with me home some evening, we would pull my minivan into the garage. That's right, I drive a minivan. Not even ironically, it's just how I roll. I have a minivan. And we'd pull into my garage at 1409 Ramona. We'd walk into the laundry room. We'd stumble over a few book bags and tennis shoes. We'd fight off an attack from Jack Dallas. I'd get this door shut behind me, and usually my first question to Mandy is, not what's for supper, not how was your day, dear. My first question is usually, any good mail? Anybody else ask this question? Any good mail today? Now, what constitutes good mail? Well, basically anything that's not junk and anything that's not a bill. So cards, the REI catalog, stuff from one of our Compassion International kids, tax refunds, all good mail, right? But the best mail is always a personal letter. Personally hearing from someone you love and you care about, man, that that is good mail. And the fact is, none of us get much good mail anymore. You know, we have emailing and texting and FaceTiming and all that great technology, but that technology has hijacked the, the, the need or or the supply of good handwritten letters. But it hasn't hijacked the value. Thoughtful handwritten correspondence, I think, is more valuable and meaningful than really ever. Well, you haven't arrived home with me this morning, but I need to tell you that it is a good mail day. Because today we launch a sermon series where we are going to study a letter written by the Apostle Peter. And so I want you now to turn your Bibles to the, to the book of First Peter. First Peter. Since the summer of 2012, we have studied as a church two Pauline epistles, Philippians and Titus, the Old Testament book of Jonah, First John, the Gospel of Mark, and now we begin First Peter. And I, and I picked First Peter because if you remember from our study of Mark, Mark's gospel is the ministry of Jesus as preached and accounted for by the Apostle Peter. It's recorded by John Mark, but it's really Peter's account. So as a complement to that study, we now want to turn our attention to a letter that was written by the most prominent of the original 12 disciples, Simon Peter. And I say the most prominent because he really is the leader. If you look at the four listings of the disciples in the New Testament, Peter leads all of them. He's always listed first. The order of the other men is always sort of a mixed bag, but Peter always leads the way. He is the most prominent of the twelve. And so today will be an introduction of the book, as well as a look at the book's first two verses. So let's go ahead and read those verses together. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Peter writes these words. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. So these two verses... They give us, really, everything we need to properly introduce this study. They tell us who this letter is from, so we have an author. 
They tell us who this letter is written to, which would be the audience. And it tells us basically what this letter is about. So we have this assertion, author, audience, and assertion. That's your outline for this morning. So now let's look at the author. And I've already tipped my hand here, not to mention the title of the book sort of spells it out. The writer is Peter. Peter is the only man in the New Testament named Peter. So he's tough to get confused with anybody. But as you know, he is not introduced by that name. He is introduced in the gospel record as Simon. That's his Hebrew name. And we first come to know him as Andrew's brother. Both of them were fishermen in Galilee in business together and likely in business with James and John. And here's how Simon came to be called Peter. This is John chapter 1, verse 41 and 42. It says that Andrew first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So Cephas was the Aramaic translation of the Greek word Petros, which we translate as Peter, and the word meant rock or stone. And it's interesting, we see this slow progression in the life of Peter. He, he, he always appears bold. He always appears a little brash and impulsive. He, he's prone to failure. He lacks understanding. He talks way too much. And that's just who he is. But there's this progression. He's introduced as Simon. Then he's referred to as Simon Peter quite a lot. But then by the close of the Gospels, and as we move into the record that is the book of Acts, we see that he's just Peter. When Jesus called this fisherman by the Sea of Galilee, he said to him, follow me and I will make you a different kind of fisherman. Follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. And so through the gospel's pages, we see Peter, we see him journey with Jesus. We see him drop everything to follow Christ. We see him question the authority of Christ. We see him affirm the deity of Christ. We see him display a lack of faith in Christ. He ascends the Mount of Transfiguration with Christ, where the glory of Jesus is revealed. And then in the next frame, Jesus rebukes Peter because he's acting as a tool of Satan. He says, get behind me. We see Peter fall asleep in the garden when Jesus had ordered him to pray. Then moments later, he is willing to defend Christ to the, to, to the death, drawing a sword and removing a, a soldier's ear. I suppose rock bottom for this man called the rock was denying that he even knew Jesus. But inasmuch as he fell, he was also restored to relationship with Christ. When the risen Christ appeared to Peter by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus commissioned him to feed his sheep, to lead the church, to guard and teach the people that the Spirit would draw to faith in Jesus. And so ultimately, Peter would be the first disciple to preach the gospel to the masses. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter, indwelt by the Holy Spirit as he was, he declares to a group numbering in the thousands, he declares the truth about Jesus, calling people to repentance and and faith, and 3,000 were baptized that day. From there, Peter would faithfully evangelize and establish churches, and he would do this throughout the Roman Empire. He and Paul, maybe they would clash a little bit along the way, but, but Peter would remain teachable. He continued to grow in grace and in truth, and his his vision for the gospel continued to expand to all nations and to all peoples. 
Eventually, we know that Peter ended up in prison in Rome, and from there, he would be killed by the hand of the Romans. That was an act that had him crucified upside down because he, he refused to die in the same manner as his Savior. I like how Warren Wiersbe explained Peter's progression. He said, As Simon, he was only another piece of clay, but Jesus Christ made a rock out of him. As Simon, he was a man who operated in the flesh. His old man ruled. As, as Peter, he was a leader led and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So for those of you who struggle with knowing whether or not growth in Christ is even possible, maybe you wonder if the Spirit's work will ever really change you. Maybe you question what seems like a a complete lack of transformation in your life. I want you to look at the Apostle Peter. Look at Peter and know, just as it did in Peter's life, the words of Philippians 1.16 will prove true in your life, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it into the day of Christ Jesus. If he started the work, he's going to finish the work. It's not about your faithfulness, it's about his. But if you look at verse 1, he does more than just identify himself as Peter. He also says that he is an apostle. Now, apostles were a unique group of men. The word apostle is really applied to any kind of messenger or sent one. That's what the term means, sent one. But the distinction Peter applies to himself in in, in verse 1 is that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, which means that he and the uh, other 11 apostles and Paul, they were uniquely called, given the unique distinction of em- as emissaries of Christ. They had seen Christ, they had seen him after the resurrection, they knew him, and Christ had personally called and commissioned and sent them to preach the gospel. They were first generation direct apostles of Christ. The New Testament says these apostles were the foundation of the church. Ephesians 2.20 says the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ being the chief cornerstone. According to Ephesians 3.5, the apostles received direct revelation from God, which is why the New Testament was written by the apostles or those who were directly associated with the apostles. So these men, they were specially called, personally commissioned by Jesus himself. They were the foundation of the church because they laid the church's foundational doctrine. They received direct revelation from God, and they gave that revelation to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and that revelation we've actually read this morning on the pages of the New Testament. Which leads me to say this about authorship. No one in the early church denied that this letter was written, or at least dictated, by the Apostle Peter. So Irenaeus and Polycarp and Justin Martyr and Origen and Tertullian, all of the early church fathers, they attribute this book to Peter. That's important because 19th century higher criticism would come along and say, no, 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 I know it's 1,800 years later, but we don't really believe that Peter wrote this. There's some things wrong with the Greek, and it's way too complex and way too refined, and all kinds of other evidence that really doesn't stick and I don't even want to get into. But Peter, from all accounts, only man named Peter in the New Testament, all the early church fathers attributed this book to Peter. We have no reason to doubt that Peter didn't write this letter. So if you wanted to date this letter, we didn't 
we really don't know for certain when it was written, but I think AD 63 would be a really good guess. It's about the time Titus was written as well. And when that is, that's the year before the emperor Nero would burn Rome and blame it on the Christians. Remember Nero, he was a maniac, and he had a part of the city of Rome burned. He sat and watched it playing the fiddle from the terrace on his villa. And as it burned, he blamed it on the Christians, and that was in A.D. 64. And so from that point on, the persecution of the church really, really ramped up. And since Peter doesn't really mention Nero, we have to believe that Nero may have been in power, but it was probably before that sort of ramped up persecution period that started in 64 A.D. But Peter is writing from prison in Rome, and we know that because of chapter 5 and verse 13. In that verse, he sends greetings to these churches. He sends greetings from Babylon. And we know that he he wasn't actually in Babylon. And we also know that the New Testament term Babylon is used interchangeably with the city of Rome. You see that in Revelation 17 and 18. Babylon and Rome, they're, they're used interchangeably. So Peter's the author, written about 63 AD, written from Rome. Who then is he writing this letter to? That brings us to the second heading there in your outline. Who is the audience? Well, unlike the other epistles that we've studied, this letter is not to a specific church. So if you were with us through the fall, you remember that that Paul's letter to Titus, it had direct and immediate application to those churches that Paul was writing to in Crete. But this letter is not like Titus. It's what's called an encyclical or a circular letter, which means it was meant for a group of churches, a group of churches that were centered in a fairly wide geographic area. It was meant to circulate amongst amongst those fellowships. And that area is spelled out in verse 1, but before we talk about where they are, let's talk about who they are. Because in describing who they are, Peter gets immediately theological here. This is more than just sort of a stale, standard greeting. There is deep truth found in these first couple of verses. So who are they? Who's this letter meant for? Verse 1 tells us that it's meant for the elect. And we're going to talk about that word a little bit more here in a moment. It's an important word. But I first want to unpack that phrase that follows the word elect. It's the phrase exiles of the dispersion. What does that mean? Exiles of the dispersion. The word exiles is used in the New Testament almost exclusively in the book of 1 Peter. It shows up in Hebrews 11, and there it's actually describing events of the Old Testament, and that's because the roots of the word are very Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, the Hebrew people were often in exile. They were often strangers in a strange land. So when in slavery to the Egyptians, they were said to be in exile. When wandering in the desert for 40 years, they were in exile. When in captivity, they were in exile. Peter is saying to these Christians, just as God's chosen people in the Old Testament, you, believers in Christ, you are exiles. Even at home, you're not home. And people disagree about whether Peter was writing primarily to Jewish believers or to Gentile believers. I think he was writing to both groups. I think the churches would, who would read this letter were a really diverse mix of, of both Jews and Gentiles. And I think that's all the more reason for him to use this language. Peter wants all of them, no matter their background, pagan or Jew, to be placed in the same category. They are all exiles of the dispersion. 
They are all God's chosen people, both Jew and Gentile, dispersed into cultures and societies that do not worship and submit to Jesus Christ. Which is to say, Jews who are often designated as exiles in the Old Testament, they do not have a monopoly on that title. God's people are God's people, whether Jewish Christian or Gentile Christian, and because they are God's people, all of them will feel like they are aliens and strangers in this world. That's just the nature of being one of God's people. And so what Peter is saying is, I'm writing to people who live on this earth, but because of God's sovereign grace, they are not at home on this earth. They live here, yes, but there is nothing about this place that feels comfortable to them. Several years ago, I went on a mission trip to Haiti. Now, Haiti is only about five hours by plane from Dallas, but it's also the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. And really, Haiti, it might as well be another planet. And those of you who have been to to Niger have some context for what I'm saying here. I've never felt less at home than when in Haiti. I was there just a few months after the earthquake back in 2010, and it's the only mission trip I've ever been on where I couldn't wait to leave. And perhaps I didn't prepare my heart well enough, perhaps I was just too white or too affluent, and perhaps the devastation was just too overwhelming, but moving through that country, I was overcome time and time and time again with a longing to be somewhere else. And that's how Paul's describing who these people are. They are believers in Christ. They live in these regions that are ruled by Roman officials and dominated by pagan idolatry and infiltrated with unbiblical thinking. And so they, in these places, they are exiles Just like the Old Testament people of God who were dispersed from the land of promise, these people are not yet in their promised land, which is the kingdom of heaven, this land that awaits them. They are exiles. And you know what? We are exiles in this day and age. If you're a Christian, you are an alien and a stranger in this world, in this culture. If this culture of ours doesn't make you uncomfortable and squeamish and not at home, you should probably question whether or not you love and worship Christ. Peter's text was written in the first century, but it does. It speaks to us in this 21st century as well. And just practically speaking, if you're a businessman and you have decided as a Christian not to cheat and and not to lie, if you've decided to deliver on the things that you promise, you know what? You're a stranger in this world. If you're a husband and you have decided to be faithful to your wife because you're a Christian, you're a stranger in this world. If you're a Christian teenager and you have decided to live for Jesus in the halls of your high school, you're a resident alien in this world. If you're an employee, full-time, part-time, blue-collar, white-collar, doesn't matter, and you have decided to do your work unto the Lord, not as pleasing men, but as pleasing God, if you've decided that money will not be the driving force in your life, but but that Christ is, you're a stranger in this world. If you're depressed and discouraged and you have said, no, I won't turn to substances, I won't turn to drugs or alcohol to handle my problems, you know what? You are swimming against the tide and you're a stranger in this world. Being in exile is not a question of being isolated from the world. That's impossible as well as fruitless. Being in exile is a question of being in the world but not of the world. And that's our condition. 
We are strangers in the world, exiles who have been scattered by God into very many places. We are like seeds the wind has carried in all directions. We gather on Sunday, then we scatter for the rest of the week. And where exactly are all of these believers that Peter is writing to scatter? The text tells us Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. There's a map here that helps you see that. You can see it's that northern part of Asia Minor, largely those regions kind of just south of the Black Sea, what is today modern Turkey, an area today really that is almost thoroughly Muslim. That's where these churches were located. And it's interesting, in Acts chapter 16, Paul is trying to get into this region. He wants to plant churches in the northern part of Asia Minor. He wants to get into Bithynia. But you remember there in Acts 16, he gets redirected by the Holy Spirit to go to Philippi. And at Philippi, he finds a woman named Lydia by the river. And she's, she's eager to hear the gospel. And in, and in a short time, the first church in Europe would be planted. So this region, if, if you look here, if you turn to your maps in the back of your Bible, you'll probably find a map of Paul's missionary journeys. And what do you notice about Paul's missionary journeys if you were to look at that map? You'll notice that throughout them, the three or four missionary journeys that he had, he never made it into this region. Yes, he made it into Asia, but Bithynia and Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, Paul never went in there. The gospel was there, churches were there, but they got there by other means, means other than Paul. And so Peter is writing them a letter of encouragement. And he writes them because he knows that they are elect exiles. They are people chosen by God to be different and distinct from the world that they reside in. So think about this. These people 2,000 years ago, and you today, you were chosen by God to have the blessing, the blessing, mind you, of being not of this world. That's a blessing. You have been honored to not fit here to just being a little bit odd and misunderstood. You have been chosen by God to to do things that in the normal way the world operates make no sense whatsoever, and it's because you have been called out as a citizen of someplace else. Yes, you live here, but your home is not here. And you know what? You shouldn't mourn that status. You shouldn't hide it either. This cross-cultural, exiled existence is a sign of the fact that grace, God's transforming grace, has been given to you and is at work in you. So consider it a miraculous gift that your heart grieves at places where other people's hearts don't grieve. Your heart rejoices where other people's hearts don't rejoice. It's a wonderful thing that what's important to you is different than what's important to those people who don't know the Lord. And before you start taking credit for that, before you start patting yourself on the back for that, please know all of that is a grace. It's grace. It's from God. But very often, it can be uncomfortable grace. It's not easy to be an alien and a stranger. It's not easy to be an exile. But it is a grace. And that's what underscores the assertion here. This truth about grace underscores the major message of the book. The word grace is used in every chapter of 1 Peter, and the primary assertion of the book is found in chapter 5 and verse 12. Peter tells us what this book is about. He tells us why he's written this letter. 
Verse 12, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. So all that he's written, this is the true grace of God, now stand firm in it. How do you stand firm in grace? Look at verse 2. You stand firm in grace by grasping the truth laid down there in verse 2. There you see three prepositional phrases that explain to you how the grace of God is at work in your life. In your life. Notice that phrase, according to the foreknowledge of God. What's that? Well, that's your elect status again. That word elect that we saw in verse 1 kind of circles back here in verse 2. And that's the, the work of God that has made you an alien and a stranger in this world. That work that has exiled you and maybe even brought about suffering in your life. All of that is according to the foreknowledge of God. And that phrase, foreknowledge of God, it doesn't just mean prior knowledge. It actually means predetermination. It's a robust word. So think of this. God has placed his love on you before the foundations of the world were even set into place. He determined it. If you're a Christian today, you have a father who knows everything about you. You have a father who has written every aspect of your story because every aspect of your story is connected to his operation of grace in your life and the final completion of the work that he's wanting to do in you. Foreknowledge. So everything you face, you can say to yourself, man, my father knows this. Every place you're in, my father knows this location. My father knows this situation. My father knows this circumstance. My father knows what's going on with me because all that I am, all that I faith, face, it's all been written in his book. It's according to his foreknowledge. Therefore, the, the things that are troubling you, the crud that's going on in your life, the things that are mysterious to you and the things that are really, really hard for you to, to, to understand right now, he knows he knows, and he's working out his purpose, and that is grace you must stand in. You need to know that your father knows. It's not sneaking up on him. It doesn't take him by surprise. He doesn't have any of these balls in the air. The one who ordered the direction of my life long before I took my first breath, he knows. He fully knows. Look at what's next there. It's the sanctification of the Spirit. So the Father's keenly aware, and he has, even he has even designed your situation, while the Spirit is the divine power who is involved with your sanctification. So the Father designing your situation, the Spirit involved with your sanctification. Sanctification is the process of, of setting you apart, making you look more like Jesus. The Spirit is doing that very thing in our lives. He is the means used to further the Father's loving purposes. The Spirit is the means the Father uses, uses to further His loving purposes in your life. And this is important to think through because you have probably realized that you are unable to eradicate the sin in your life by your own efforts. You can't do it by your own determination, by your own will. You know this. You've tried. And you can't do it because it's the Spirit's work to do. The transforming power of the Spirit of God, it can actually, I've seen it happen in my own life and in your life, it can break bad habits and make good habits. It can turn rotten patterns into healthy patterns. It can move you from 
perverse thoughts to pure thoughts. There is actually hope for those sins that you seem unable to defeat because in you resides the actual power to defeat it. That power is the Holy Spirit. So you're not left alone in this war against sin and ungodliness. The Spirit is there, and He's sanctifying you. That's why He's there. Next phrase, for obedience to Jesus Christ. As the elect, foreknown by the Father, being sanctified by the Spirit, you have been called to a new way of living. So, new, so you're no longer ruled by your, your physical desires. You're no longer ruled by your, your fickle emotions. No longer Lord of your own life. No, you're, you're now called to submit everything you are and everything you do to the Lordship of Jesus Christ That's what obedience means. Obedience is not so much about knowing the rules and then following them. No, it's more fundamentally about being submissive to the Lord Jesus. Saying, he is Lord, I am not. He is good, he knows what's best for me, I'll submit to him. In those terms, the act of submitting, submitting to the Lord Jesus, this is the highest honor you could ever be given. It's the highest honor you could ever be given. We don't think of submission as honor, do we? But if it's to the Lord Jesus, it's absolutely honor. I like what Paul Tripp says. He says, you'll never understand God's call to obey until you understand that obedience in itself is a reward. Obedience in itself is a reward. And what he means by that is this, to submit to Christ... What that means is you are liberated from the bondage of your own agenda. You are out from underneath your need to be self-sovereign, to always have it your way. And you know what? That's a grace. You are no longer Lord. Jesus is Lord. That is grace. You're a bad Lord. You are. He is a good Lord. That is grace. And for the sprinkling with his blood. This is an image of cleansing and forgiveness. It's actually an Old Testament image. But for the New Testament people of God, for us, that phrase, the sprinkling of his blood, it celebrates the truth that by the shed blood of Christ, we stand before God as righteous. We stand before God as righteous. An exchange has been made. An imputation has occurred. Jesus has taken our sin upon himself. Our sin has been imputed to him. And he has imputed to us his righteousness. We give him our sin. He gives us his righteousness. It's the wonderful exchange is what Martin Luther called it. Yet at the same time, we know that we still sin. We are people who are in daily need of forgiveness and daily need of cleansing. And because the shed blood of Jesus, listen now, we have the hope of knowing that no matter how deep your struggle is, no matter how great your failure is, no matter how overwhelming your weaknesses are, there is ongoing forgiveness and there is ongoing cleansing because of the blood of Christ. I do not have to run in fear from God's presence. Why? Because of the shed blood of Christ. 
I can run toward him and once again receive his cleansing, once again stand in his righteousness. Is that the direction that you're running this morning? Are you running to Christ on the basis of his shed blood? Or are you hiding in your guilt? Are you covered in your shame? Look to Christ. His shed blood. The sprinkling of his blood is what makes you right with God. You can come out from underneath that guilt and underneath that shame if you would put your faith in Jesus. Transfer your trust from whatever it is you've got it in. Your own works, some idol, some relationship. Say, that doesn't work. I'm the Lord of that stuff. I need him to be the Lord of my life. He's a Lord that would actually die for me. All this stuff makes me die for it. But this Lord has died for me, and by his blood I am made righteous. So the question, the question as we close, do you believe all this? Do you live like this really is your identity? Are you standing in this grace? Are you assured that though you feel like a stranger in this world, are you assured that that you know you are right where God the Father wants you because of his electing love? Are you assured that he has a plan for you, the story of your life, and it involves the Spirit sanctifying you, forming in you the image of Jesus? Are you submissive to the Lordship of Christ, finding strength instead of shame in the blood that was shed for you. That's the ongoing message of this letter. These exiles that Peter is writing to, they are suffering. They are not at home in this world. They see what's going on around them in the culture, and they have every reason to be afraid. But Peter is calling them to stand in grace. That's what this letter is about. Standing in grace. So it's a good mail day. As we get into this, it's a good mail day. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. That's how this passage closes. It's a good one. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this word from the Apostle Peter. We anticipate the ways that it will shape our hearts and lives. We anticipate the way it will prepare us for for suffering, for for the reality that we are a people exiled, not at home in this world. So God, use it in our hearts. Press it deeply by your Holy Spirit into our minds. And God, if there's anyone here that that has never trusted in Christ, that has not acknowledged that they are a sinner and Christ is the Savior they need, I pray that they would throw off the lordship they have over their life and submit to his lordship today. Lord, we thank you for this time and this place, and I do thank you for this this people who are such a blessing to me. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.